The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC, and here is your top five at five stocks trying to snap a two-week losing streak as interest rates rise. Futures, they're on the rise as well. Get ready for some earnings. Three big banks set to report, and we lay out the big themes for you. Speaking of three, President Biden making history with three new Federal Reserve nominations, including a CNBC contributor. Plus, are the House panel investigating the January 6th riot is singling out a number of social media companies. And later, the worst is far from over as we take a closer look at Europe's energy crisis. The head of the International Energy Agency is here by Vladimir Putin may be in part to blame. It is Friday, January 14th. This is Worldwide Exchange. Well, good Friday morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching. I am Brian Sullivan. Thanks for joining us and rounding out your week here on CNBC. Let's kick off your Friday money with U.S. stock futures, and they're doing okay. Futures are up about three-tenths of 1% across the board. All the major averages pretty much about the same. Now, the Dow and the S&P are trying to end the week on a high note and... Snap a two-week losing streak. Yes, it does happen. Now, it's been the worst for the NASDAQ, down nearly a percent this week and on track for its third down week in a row as rates rise. Tech stocks have gone down. One reason, of course, is the yield on that 10-year note. Let's check this morning. It has been rising this year, but not today. The yield on the benchmark 10-year Treasury is holding steady at 1.73% right now. Oil it has also been on the rise this year, and crude oil is now back above 82 bucks a barrel traded here, a little higher in Europe, getting back, by the way, where it was before the announcement in November of the release of some of our emergency stockpiles, the SPR. Oil has regained all of that and more, something certainly to watch. All right, let's watch what's happening worldwide. Our own Juliana Tattlebaum is in London with the early trade and some of your key headlines. Juliana Good Friday morning. Brian, good for Friday morning to you. Here in Europe, we are trading on the back foot. So following the week session yesterday on Wall Street and the week session overnight in Asia, we've got red across the board. The French market down about seven-tenths of a percent. The German market down by about the same. A little bit more resilience here in the U.K. with the FTSE 100 trading down just about nine basis points or so. We have seen some strength in sterling. The currency and that inverse relationship seems to be front and center for the U.K. market today. All of this after a Fairly muted day yesterday for European stocks. Now, one name in particular that's in focus this morning is SAP, the German technology giant. The company is among the best performers in Europe. It's still down about 23 basis points or so. This after the company released better than expected fourth quarter results and issued some strong guidance for the year. Cloud computing revenue saw a 28% bump in fourth, fourth quarter to 2.6 billion euros. The German software giant sees segment revenue growing by another 26 
6% this year, contributing to an overall software and cloud revenue rise of 4 to 6%. So a huge part of SAP's strategy moving forward, and it seems to be seeing some uh, positive momentum in that space. So still in negative territory, but more resilient than the broader European market. Brian? All right, Juliana, thank you very much. Meantime, let's get now to some of this morning's top stories right here at home. Savannah Hanau is here with those. Savannah, good Friday morning to you. Brian, good Friday morning to you as well. President Biden is planning to nominate Sarah Bloom Raskin to be the Federal Reserve's next vice chair for supervision, a role seen as the country's most powerful banking regulator. Along with Raskin, who is a former deputy Treasury secretary and former Fed board governor, Biden will also tap Lisa Cook and Philip Jefferson to serve as central bank governors. And if confirmed, Cook would be the first black woman to serve on the Fed's board. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol riot says it's issued subpoenas to Twitter, Reddit, Facebook parent Meta, and Google parent Alphabet. The subpoenas come after the bipartisan committee says it received inadequate responses from those and other social media companies when it requested records over the summer. In letters to the four companies, the committee believes each has held back information that is central to the House investigation. And Jack Dorsey's payment company, Block, formerly known as Square, is going to start mining for Bitcoin. In a string of tweets, Block's head of hardware says the goal is to make mining more distributed and efficient in every way from buying and setup to maintenance and the actual mining. Brian? All right, Savannah now. Savannah, we'll see you in a few minutes. Thank you very much. All right, when we come back, a CNBC exclusive with IEA Chief Dr. Fatih Barol. His take on the European energy crisis, natural gas prices, and the state of play with Russia. Plus, possibly feeling the pressure from GM, Ford, and even Rivian, the latest roadblock for Tesla's Cybertruck ahead. And then, talk about needing a drink. Why, even a cold six-pack kind of helps share as a Boston beer this morning. A lot more to do. We're back with it right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. All right, welcome or welcome back. Now to our continued coverage of Europe's energy crisis. And while the price of natural gas in Europe has come down off its recent high, it is still 300% higher than one year ago, which is causing millions of families across Europe and the UK to make some very hard choices about how much they can afford to heat their homes this winter. Your next guest says one of the big causes of this is Vladimir Putin and Russian gas producers like Gazprom potentially holding back critical supplies to Europe. Dr. Fatih Barol is the head of the International Energy Agency, and he joins us live from Paris in a worldwide exchange exclusive. Dr. Barol, it's great to have you on at this important time. Uh, You made some comments this week about Russia. Do you believe 
that Russia is purposefully holding back critical gas supplies to Europe. All right, waiting to get Dr. Barol back with some technical issues here. Dr. Barol, are you there? All right, guess what? We're going to take a short break here, get these technical woes figured out, folks. We'll take a short break here and be back with Dr. Barol from the IEA about that and what Europe needs to do better next time. Also, we'll talk more about big bank earnings and why some analysts are lowering their targets there. Get back with Dr. Barol right after this short break. Stick around. Today's big number, $10.4 billion. That's how much tax revenue has been generated from legal adult-use cannabis sales since 2014, according to data from the Marijuana Policy Project. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. All right, welcome or welcome back here. Uh, Dr. Fatih Barol is the head of the International Energy Agency and joins us live now from Paris. Got the technical kings worked out. Dr. Barol, great to have you on. I don't know if you heard my question, but I will re-ask it. How much do you believe that Russia, Gazprom, Vladimir Putin are to blame for the very high gas prices that much of Europe is paying right now? Uh, uh, thank you. Now, uh, the situation we are in is, of course, uh, extraordinary. Huge increase in the gas prices and consequently on the electricity prices for the households, industry, and uh, others. So there are three reasons uh, for that. The first one is huge, very strong natural gas demand growth, uh, mainly driven by the economic growth rebound from the uh, covid the second one is there are several, as it happens, several plant and unplanned outages on the uh, supply side. And third, uh, the, the major uh, gas exporting country uh, to Europe, uh, Russia, uh, which is about uh, 45% of all the exports coming to uh, 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 Europe, is on the low side. For example, compared to last uh, year, the uh, year on year, uh, the gas exports to Europe from Russia is about 20% lower than uh, uh, previous year. And when we look at the other uh, pipeline exporters, uh, the uh, Norway, uh, uh, the Azerbaijan, Algeria, they all increase their exports to Europe but in the case of uh, Russia, they declined uh, substantially. This altogether, uh, with the low storage levels of gas, uh, gave this very, very high gas prices. And now we are entering in Europe, here in Paris, in France, and in Europe, uh, uh, the uh, winter period. And the, uh, this month, but especially February, 
may well be uh, ugly if we don't uh, see additional volumes coming from mm-hmm. uh, Russia and elsewhere, and especially if the uh, winter is uh, harsh. Dr. Barol, do you believe that Russia is purposefully withholding gas supplies to Europe, either over Ukraine, over the Nord Stream 2 pipeline approval, or both? In other words, using their gas as a geopolitical economic weapon. So uh, I am a... a uh, uh, man of numbers. I, I look when I look at the numbers, I see that the demand in uh, Europe is huge, very strong. All the other exporters, I mentioned it, it, uh, three of them: uh, uh, Norway, Azerbaijan, Algeria. They are all uh, increasing their exports, and Russia has at least hundred MCM per day spare capacity which would mean they could easily, but I, I underline easily, increase the, uh, their exports to Europe by a factor of 30%. So putting these things together, uh, I uh, uh, believe it would be uh, left to commentators to see why under this dynamics, huge demand, other exporters are uh, uh, increasing their exports, but the Russia exports mm-hmm. uh, go down while they have enough unused uh, capacity at home. But Dr. Barol, many are questioning how Europe got into this precarious position in the first place. They're saying that the UK closing natural gas storage, Germany shutting down nuclear, that the energy transition that we need to have was simply too quick. It was there was not enough thought put into where they would get the power. And now Europe is subject to the whims of Vladimir Putin. In your mind, how did Europe get into this rather dangerous situation? I think uh, it is very clear. Uh, many European governments didn't do their homework. This uh, ranges from not to store enough gas, such a strategic uh, 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 fuel uh, in their uh, home uh, countries, to in some countries, again, as you mentioned, the shutting down the nuclear, which was working just uh, uh, perfectly. But for me, a strategic mistake is that the uh, you are depending on a very strategic good on a huge amount on one single country, one single uh, 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 exporter. I think this is a strategic mistake. Today it is uh, natural gas. Tomorrow it could be uh, lithium. But I can tell you that the station we are in is not a crisis of uh, uh, clean energy. This is a crisis of uh, mm-hmm. natural gas and the uh, the uh, I think it is very clear when you look at the numbers who are responsible for that. It's true that we are going through extraordinary market conditions because of the huge demand growth, uh, the lots of uh, outages for supply. Uh, the European countries didn't do their homeworks, many of them, this is also true. But for me, the strategic mistake, the lesson we have to learn from this is that do not rely 
on one single country for their exports for a strategic good. Diversify it as much as possible. And when we look at it today, why we see a softening of the mm -hmm. prices slightly is thanks to the uh, LNG uh, coming from the uh, United States. It was yep. uh, very helpful. Now, and we look at Poland, perhaps, as an example, getting, I think, about a quarter of their gas supplies from the United States. What is the role of U.S. LNG in Europe, Dr. Burrell? I think this is uh, in the last few weeks, the, the LNG cargos coming from the United States was, uh, in court, a lifesaver for the, uh, the, uh, the prices. It helped to uh, calm down the prices. But they are still very high, as you showed beginning uh, of your uh, 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 show. Uh, but uh, it is not enough by itself. Uh, it is helpful, but it is not enough because, as I mentioned, about 45% uh, of all the imports are coming from one single country. Mm -hmm. And what kind of strategic behavior this country takes is critical for uh, the European gas markets and as well as electricity markets. I want to switch gears quickly, Dr. Barol, to oil. The price of oil is above 82 here. It's above 85 U.S. dollars in Europe. Demand growth. I know you've got your latest estimates coming out on Wednesday. Maybe you can give us kind of a sneak peek. Uh, do you think the world, not Europe or the U.S. necessarily, but the world is underestimating near-term demand growth for oil because the market seems to be saying it is. Yeah, I think the, as you rightly mentioned, our uh, assessment of the markets, oil markets, we are going to release it in a, a few days of uh, time. But uh, when I look at different indicators around the world, uh, I would uh, say that the oil demand dynamics uh, now are uh, significantly stronger than it was uh, a few weeks uh, ago. And this is uh, driven, uh, among other things, uh, uh, mainly uh, the Omicron uh, impacts are uh, considered uh, softer than uh, many of the analysts uh, thought before. But at the same time, I, I wouldn't be surprised uh, the, uh, the production increase, uh, strong increase coming from uh, U.S. and elsewhere. What is, of course, uh, not a good news is that there are a lot of outages in uh, Nigeria, in uh, mm -hmm. Libya, Ecuador. These are all uh, hurting the undersupply side. Dr. Fatih Barol, head of the International Energy Agency. Dr. Barol, really appreciate your time live from Europe this morning on the CNBC exclusive. Uh, important insight into a critical issue. Doctor, thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. Thank you. All right, folks, just remember, there is a very real threat of many families across Europe not being able to afford to heat their homes this winter. V dangerous humanitarian situation as well. All right, in the meantime, let's get a check on some of this morning's other top headlines, including yet another twist in the very strange saga of Novak Djokovic 
trying to get into Australia to play tennis. Francis Rivera is in yeah. New York with that and more. Francis, good morning. It is not end of story just yet. Brian, happy Friday to you. Yeah, Novak Djokovic is most likely out of the Australian Open. The country's immigration minister canceled his visa again. The unvaccinated Serbian tennis star arrived down under last Wednesday, but his claim of a medical exemption from Australia's strict coronavirus rules was rejected at the border. In a statement, Immigration Minister Alex Hawke confirmed the action, saying the Australian government is, quote, firmly committed to protecting Australia's borders, particularly in relation to the COVID-19 pandemic. Djokovic, Djokovic's lawyers could go back to court to apply for an injunction that would prevent him from being forced to leave the country. If that fails, he would be unable to reapply for an Australian visa for three years, so we'll see where this turns out. North Korea firing off a third weapons launch this month. That's according to South Korea. Officials say two short-range ballistic missiles were fired after the U.S. issued new sanctions over the previous launches. South Korea's Joint Chiefs of Staff say the blast came from an area west of the North Pyongyang province. And a single page of art from the 1984 Spider-Man comic book sold at auction Thursday for a record three point. $36 million. It happened on the first day of Heritage Auction's four-day comic event in Dallas. And the illustration from artist Mike Zeck shows the first ever appearance of Spidey's black suit, eventually leading to the emergence of the character Venom. But how cool is that to see the origins, Brian, and see how it's evolved over the years with so many versions of Spider-Man with this latest one, Spider-Man uh, No Way Home, I think it's called. So I haven't seen it. Need to. I have that comic. Wow. So I'm very happy about that news. I was going to say. I collected, I collected comics as a kid. I got thousands of them, and uh, this makes me very, very happy. I'm taking you to dinner, Francis. I was going to say, out. get them appraised, and then we'll go out. That'll determine where we'll go, right? Fast food sp- or something happier. Uh, who's paying? Who's paying? Yeah. Mr. Peter Parker, young, <laughs> one young photographer. Francis, thank you very much. So cool. Thanks. Here to announce... Here to announce my retirement, everybody. All right. Uh, well, actually, no. Unfortunately, I just have the comic, not the art. All right. Still kind of cool. All right. Coming up, your weekly insider buying segment is back, including one multi-million dollar buy on a beaten down lockdown stock. But as we go to break, let's take a quick look at some of the stocks having a rough start to the year. The Dow's biggest decliner so far has been a rough start for Salesforce, Nike, Microsoft, and more, but not a rough start for futures. They are higher across the board, and we're back right after this. Get ready for some big bank earnings. J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, and Citi posting out their latest results this morning, why analysts have already set the bar pretty low for the group. President Biden making history, nominating a new slate to fill some vacant roles at the Fed. Investor reaction straight ahead. Later on, the latest on the pandemic. And we are showing you what may now be the only metric that matters. We'll get reaction from one frontline doctor. It is Friday, January 14th, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Well, welcome or welcome back, everybody, and good Friday morning. Thank you very much for joining us. Just about 5.30 this morning, and here's how your money and investments look right now. And we are seeing stock futures. They are higher across the board. Markets trying to prevent two weeks straight of declines. 
Right now, we're not up by much, about a tenth or two tenths of one percent. But still, we are in the green. And as I said that, the Nasdaq goes in the red. Still, it's been a very rough go for a lot of the Nasdaq high tech, high multiple names. As interest rates rise, it reduces what should be the valuation on many of those stocks. And we are seeing tech stocks. They got hit hard so far this week and this year. Now, there's been a lot of talk on, you know, this program about the bull case for small cap stocks so far that has not worked out. In fact, uh, the Russell 2000 and the Dow Jones Industrial Average Transports both down 12% from their most recent 52-week highs. So small caps, a lot of optimism has not translated into actual investor interest. Small caps, they are down 12% from their highs of last fall. One of the reasons for all of this is the yield up in 10-year yields. That is not moving today, but we are still up 15% so far in 2022. The 10-year yields at 1.73%. By the way, mortgage rates are going to be moving. They're already up. They're going to be moving up even more. So if you're thinking about buying a home, locking in financing, maybe refinancing, you best do that now because rates, they're going up. Well, this also impacts the big banks. So let's talk about earnings and big banks. They're kicking off today. You got Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan Chase, and Citigroup all out with their numbers before the open. Now, the sector outperforming the broader market last year, and it's up more than 5% already this year, facing some very stiff year-over-year comps, all when it comes to earnings growth, profit, and other metrics. For the year, the financial sector expected to contract by 8.5% compared with the entire S&P 500. And it is the only S&P sector slated to see a decline in earnings growth this year. Joining us now with more is Argus Director of Financial Services Research, Stephen Bigger. Stephen, good to have you back on the program. What are you expecting from bank earnings this morning and this quarter overall? Good morning, Brian. Uh, so I think it's going to be a strong quarter for uh, for the bank group. If you think about the three major uh, drivers uh, for bank profitability, uh, large bank profitability, like uh, capital markets, the lending businesses, and, and of course, credit uh, quality and credit costs, it's really a nice uh, set of tailwinds for banks right now. You've got uh, you know a, a really strong capital markets environment, equity underwriting uh, did well, M&A, um, Etc. And then you have uh, the lending businesses. Uh, we had a, a nice uh, pickup in growth that the Fed uh, has announced throughout the, the, the course of the fourth quarter. So that, that's a big positive. And, and credit costs still expected to remain very low. Cycle lows, in fact. Uh, unemployment is, uh, is it's easy to find a job right now. When it's easy to find a job, you're, you're paying your bills back. So the uh, credit quality has been uh, a, a real strong suit for banks. So, so I think it's a, it's a kind of a trifecta of good uh, results for banks this quarter. And do you believe that the move up in 10-year yields, it's obviously going to help them to a point, but has any help that higher yields and maybe an, you know the net interest margin increase, has that now already, Stephen, been priced in to these stocks? Well, I, th- I think uh, the, the Fed uh, announcement on three potential Fed moves this year has probably been uh, priced in. Um, you know, the, the yield uh, and, and the margin improvement that we're likely to see will be gradual, certainly not in the fourth quarter, uh, probably not in the first. Uh, the, the earliest we expect the Fed to raise rates would be in, in March. 
Uh, so this is a latter half uh, effect. So I wouldn't get too excited about the rate uh, story just yet. Uh, now, you also need to add uh, loans uh, on the balance sheet uh, in order to take advantage of the higher interest rates. So, again, not an immediate uh, impact. Uh, so I think investors need to be a, a bit patient to see that improvement. Um, but it's a, it's a nice tailwind for banks at this point. Uh, it's a bit of a free ride, higher interest rates, uh, and it will uh, show up and uh, meaningfully in uh, operating yeah. results, we think, by the end of the year. Very- very quickly, Stephen, three new nominations to the Federal Reserve, including CBC contributor and our friend Sarah Bloom. Raskin, your take. Does that impact how you should look at some of the bank stocks, these names? I believe it does. You know, there, if there's one uh, high, uh, risk highlight, I would mention, it, and it's not on the operational side, but it is on the regulatory side. There's a lot of uh, sort of, you know, pent-up uh, regulatory momentum, uh, I would say, against the banks right now. And uh, the banks got kind of a, a pass in the first year of the new administration, uh, but we did expect, uh, bank analysts that, that is, uh, did expect that there would be some more uh, regulatory pressure. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the nominations that we're seeing so far uh, certainly indicate that. It could be pressure on, on, uh, on SPAC yep. activity. It could be pressure on uh, bank merger uh, activity. It could be on capital yep. ratios. Uh, so, yeah, there, there's a fair number of risks on the, on the regulatory side. A lot of big regulatory moves behind the scenes of the FDIC and other agencies as well, sort of consolidating power there. Stephen Bigger, uh, appreciate your views. Waiting for those earnings. Got a big day. Thanks for getting up early for us, Stephen. Take care. Thank you. All right, now to more from the new capital of capital. And that, of course, is Washington, D.C., not Wall Street. And Senator Bernie Sanders picking another fight with corporate America. Alon Moy joining us now with the details on this. Alon, what's going on? Well, Brian, Senator Bernie Sanders surely has never been afraid to throw a punch. And this time, it is Bernie versus BlackRock. In an interview, Sanders told me that he wants BlackRock CEO Larry Fink to step in and stop the protests at the Warrior Met coal mine in Alabama. Workers there have been on strike for almost a year over pay and benefits. And BlackRock is the company's largest shareholder. We have perhaps the largest private equity firm in the country, managing $10 trillion in assets, making billions of dollars a year in profit, paying its CEO $30 million a year, and saying, oh, we can't intervene to make sure that kids, children of the miners, don't go hungry. So that's the kind of pressure that has to be placed on these CEOs and these large corporations. Now, it's a strategy Sanders has used before with mixed results. He called on Warren Buffett last month to intervene in a labor dispute at a steel company owned by Berkshire Hathaway. Buffett declined to get involved. And then there was a beef with Jeff Bezos over the minimum wage. Amazon raised its starting pay to $15 an hour after Sanders introduced a bill that would have penalized the company. Sanders counts that as a win. People are sick and tired of the kind of corporate greed that we are seeing people on top right now during the pandemic are doing phenomenally well. While working people are struggling, many are dying literally as they're forced to go to work uh, in the middle of, of the pandemic. So this is not a complicated issue. There is one thing that Sanders and Fink do agree on. That's the urgency of climate change. But Sanders told me he's not worried about alienating a potential ally in that fight. Brian, we will be reaching out to BlackRock for a response. The company reports earnings today, so we'll see if this comes up as any type of political risk. Back to you. 
So, so the idea is that Bernie Sanders is going after BlackRock as the main shareholder to try to force somehow the end of this labor unrest at a coal mine in Alabama. I mean, this is getting deep. Yeah, you know, I think is really interesting here is that you're seeing this move by progressives to redefine what shareholder activism is. I mean, typically we think about it in terms of replacing the management of a company, get a new CEO or spin off a division. But they're trying to broaden the term to include how you treat your workers as well and put that sort of on the list of items and on the agenda that uh, shareholders will care about and perhaps try to pressure uh, the companies they're invested in on. The other dynamic that I think is at play here is that, you know, we're at a moment where workers have more power than they have had in decades. Workers have enormous leverage right now because of the supply chain shortage, because of the labor shortage. And so progressives are trying to ride that momentum to push for changes they've been looking for for a long time. Elon Moy with a big interview with Senator Bernie Sanders. Elon, we appreciate it. Thank you very much. Have a great day. All right, on deck, a new important tool in helping all of us understand what is really going on with COVID hospitalizations across America. Frontline doctor Michael Daniel is here. And as we head to break, some other big headlines happening now. Ford says fourth quarter sales in China rose nearly 12%. At coming just one day after Ford's market cap topped $100 billion for the first time ever, Ford's stock is up nearly 150% in 12 months. Citigroup continues to shed assets, selling its consumer banking business in Indonesia, Malaysia, and Thailand and Vietnam to Singapore's United Overseas Bank, UOB as it's known. Pay City for the net assets combined business about $700 million. And Bausch & Long has filed to go public with plans to list on the NYC and Toronto exchanges, the parent company Bausch Health will remain the majority owner. Futures, they're higher. We're back right after this. All right, welcome or welcome back. Now let's get the very latest on the pandemic. The Supreme Court blocking President Biden's vaccine or test mandate for companies with over 100 employees, saying that Congress has not given OSHA the power to regulate public health. The court, however, did allow a vaccine mandate to stand for health care facilities that take Medicare or Medicaid patients. This is President Biden announcing the U.S. government is ramping up its testing initiatives, directing staff to buy an additional 500 million tests for Americans. That is double the government's previous purchase. No timetable, though, on when people might actually be able to get them. And there is some good news from overseas. Omicron cases appear to have peaked in the U.K., this could be a sign that the wave of this very highly transmissible strain may be short-lived. The seven-day average of cases has been falling for more than a week. And on Tuesday, it dropped below the 14-day average for the first time since November. All of this, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky saying the peak of cases here in America could come within the next couple of weeks. States that had been hit hard with Omicron earlier, like New York and right here in New Jersey, Already, thankfully, seeing a drop-off in case numbers. However, hospitalizations and fatalities, which are, of course, lagging indicators, they do continue to rise, particularly among the unvaccinated. Joining us now is Dr. Michael Daniel, emergency physician at Providence St. Joseph Medical Center in Los Angeles, and somebody who's been a vocal voice and a leader uh, on not only just getting clear hospital data as well, but what is really going on, doctor. And we appreciate it. I know it's colored a lot of my reporting on this very important topic. So tell us, 
anecdotally, what are you seeing in your hospital right now? Hey, Brian, good morning. Thanks for having me back. So, you know, since we last spoke a week ago, we've seen a, unfortunately, a skyrocketing of our COVID admissions to the hospital. We have about 80 COVID patients right now. And just to give you a sense, last year, we had a peak of about 160 COVID patients. And more importantly, about 30 of those are in the ICU. And so even though this variant, Omicron, might be more milder, and we, you and I discussed that data this week from CDC and uh, Kaiser Southern California showing that Omicron patients require hospitalization for about three days less than their Delta counterparts. Um, the rate limiting factors are still the incredible speed of this variant, the amount of patients that are coming to the ER are requiring admission. And then also the other rate limiting factor is, you know, we have significant amount of uh, staff that are out sick. But we have taken some steps, as we discussed last week. Last year, we had that code team and we're bringing back that code team to respond to uh, code blues on the floor or if COVID or other ICU patients require um, interventions. And in addition, we have our first order of uh, sotrovimab, that uh, monoclonal antibody that does work against Omicron. And the California Department of Public uh, Health this week issued a waiver that will allow ER pharmacies, will allow us in the ER yeah. to prescribe the oral um, molnupiravir and Paxlovid. So these are steps that we're taking that will definitely be a game changer as far as uh, reducing those hospitalizations and deaths. Well, that's good news. Let's go into into this, doctor, because a friend of mine, a healthy guy, uh, got pretty sick with COVID over Christmas, had it sequenced, actually found out it was the Delta strain. And I bring that up because if you look at the data, and I know the media, we're all focused now on Omicron and probably whatever the next strain is going to be. Let's be clear, the stuff I'm seeing from the Midwest and out West, and you guys tend to lag us here on the East Coast by a couple of weeks, Delta is not gone. And it appears that's the real still threat. I know Omicron may be a lot more mild for the vaccinated, but Delta's not gone away. And this is really the threat. And we sort of ignored it in the media for the, for the latest strain. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. I mean, I think we were, you know, deceiving ourselves if we didn't think that we were going to have a Delta surge this winter anyway, before Omicron came on scene. And as you mentioned, in the, the Northeast and Midwest, and certainly us out here, you know, we had that Delta surge. It was a, a surge and then a plateau, and then the Omicron kind of took off from that Delta crest. And, you know, I, I suspect that a lot of our ICU hospitalizations right now at my hospital in Los Angeles are Delta related. I mean, a lot of these patients have been there for weeks, if not months. And so that's why in particular in LA, we're actually seeing an increase in our daily deaths as well. And I think that is certainly Delta. And I want to I want to highlight a little bit of positive news, but a tough time for so many people for, for going on two years now. I mean, it's just been just devastating for so many families, especially families with kids. Let's highlight a little more of the positive news. A huge Kaiser Permanente study not a couple hundred people. I think it was 70,000 people in the study shows, thankfully, with Omicron, that even with hospitalizations, the length of the stay is cut down by like 70%. I think the average doctor was like one and a half days versus four or five days. Are, are you seeing that even with the people who are admitted that they are able to leave sooner or get better quicker. Sure, absolutely. I think that's what we're seeing as far as the high turnover of those admissions that are likely Omicron that require a hospital stay of just a couple of days versus, 
you know, five or longer, as they saw with Delta, where they received some supplemental oxygen, um, perhaps some other um, antiretroviral uh, treatments and um, other drugs that we have available for them in the ICU, and then they go home. But again, it's certainly the, the speed, the trajectory of having so many of those that even though they require less number of stay, less number of days to stay in the hospital, you still need a nurse to staff that bed. And, you know, it's been a, it's been a tough time for us as far as um, nursing call outs because of sickness. And, you know, it's not just the nurses, it's the respiratory therapists, it's the docs, it's the janitors, it's the support staff. You know, it's going to be a rough month for us. And even if we peak at the end of January, you still have the back yeah. end of that surge for the rest of February. Yeah, I want to say a big, huge thank you uh, to everybody out there that doing God's work, Dr. Daniel, and, and putting in the hours, your staffing with sickness, people dealing with their own kids, their own families. And we do appreciate it. I know it's been a rough time and it may be rough for the next few weeks, but we certainly appreciate it. Dr. Michael Daniel. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, everybody out there. By the way, if you see a healthcare worker somewhere that you know, buy them a drink, buy them dinner, do something. Thank them. They are literally have been just crushing themselves for going on two years now. All right. On deck, your exclusive weekly insider buying report. And today's top five are some big buys for a couple of names that you may know. But first, some big money movers. French state-controlled utility Electricité de France, the biggest power producer in France, is getting crushed right now. That stock is down 15%. The reason? The French government has announced curbs on how much they are allowed to charge their customers for power. We have talked a lot about this European energy crisis going on right now. The government of France saying, you can only charge this EDF. That's going to crush their profit. Good for consumers, bad for them. That stock is down 15% on that news. Shares of Boston Beer, Sam, sinking after the company slashed earnings guidance because of, you guessed it, higher than expected supply chain problems. That problem not getting any better, despite what you may have heard. It's not getting any better for most American companies. And on Tesla, following a story we hit last night on Fast Money, Reuters reporting the company is delaying production of the Cybertruck to the first quarter of next year instead of 2022. We're back with more right after this. All right, time now for your weekly insider buying exclusive. It is back. This is where we highlight the top five stocks being bought the most by their C-suite level execs with their own money, not stock buybacks. These are people buying with their own cash. And as always, the data comes to us with our thanks from Insider Score Verity Platforms. And as always, we are counting you down five to one. You ready? I am. Here we go. All right, the fifth most insider buying this week. Bed Bath & Beyond, the CFO buying 207000 worth. Not a lot, but he was one of four different buyers of BBBY this year. That is the most in a week since 2004. Number four, Petco, ticker Wolf. Because of course, and a $400,000 buy by the CEO, his third buy in the past year. Adobe comes in at number three, a board member buying just under $500,000 worth of the stock. By the way, the first buy ever for this 10-year board member buying Adobe after it got crushed on some bad earnings. There you go. Watch Adobe. Now for some bigger numbers. Number two, DocuSign. The CEO making a $5 million buy, his second $5 million purchase 
in the past five weeks. See, on Wex here, it's all about the, the fives. By the way, he's buying into weakness. That stock down 54% in six months. And this is on DocuSign, the single biggest insider buy ever on this company. And the number one bigger insider buy this week, Smartsheet. That is a $9.4 million purchase by a member of the board. This is the single largest insider buy ever at Smartsheet as well. And it is only the fourth ever big insider buy, although we featured, by the way, one of those insider buys last year. So two big insider purchases in a year on Smartsheet, a stock that is down 20%, certainly this year, by the way, already, certainly a name to watch. So there you go, your top five names, Bed Bath & Beyond, Petco, Adobe, DocuSign, and Smartsheet. A reminder, we do this kind of almost every Friday, got some blackout periods during earnings, etc. but it's a segment you will only see and hear about right here on Worldwide Exchange or on CNBC Pro. Sign up today. All right, now let's talk more about the markets and your money as we go ahead and Opportunity Fridays, as we call them. And welcome in Patrick Frizzetti, Managing Director at Rose Advisors at Hightower. Patrick, great to have you on. What are you advising clients to do with their equities, given this rise in rates? Everybody's kind of shocked a little bit, I think. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brian. You know, the markets are off to a slow start this year. I, I don't think it's much of a surprise. I mean, there's a major sector rotation going on, and I think that's going to continue throughout at least the first half of the year. Um, you know, the rotation has everything to do with interest rates, um, but also where valuations are right now. You know, the Fed is trying to tackle inflation. Every time Chairman Powell speaks, he brings up inflation. Um, and there are some concerns that the Fed, you know, may may hike rates, I think, a little too fast. I certainly have concerns that they may do so. But, you know, what's really interesting is to watch the dollar over the past week. Despite all of the rate talk, you know, the DXY is, is down. So, you know, it shows how much is already, you know, priced into the market here. Um, but there's there's a change of leadership yeah. in the market going on. And that type of rotation doesn't happen with some bear market action. And a little birdie has told me that you might be a buyer of some energy equities. I know a lot of buyer people aren't buying these stocks at all, ESG and what have you, but you think there's some good yeah. value here. Absolutely. You know, despite the comeback in 2021 after, you know, a tough 2020 with COVID, you know, the energy sector will continue to, I believe, uh, have a strong 2022. I mean, you have to have some exposure to the energy name. So whether it's in the the midstream uh, space, like an energy product partners, or whether it's, you know, one of the majors like Chevron, you want to focus on cash flow. You know, the, the main thing I tell my clients is, you know, when, when you look at some of these high multiple stocks that are now selling off, right, you mentioned a couple of insider buys and a few of them, but, you know, during a rotation in a deflationary world, you can pay almost any price for, for future growth. But when yep. inflation spikes and the Fed has to act, you want to focus on current cash flow. And the energy sector is less than 3% of the yep. S&P 500. That's pretty low. Very low. Patrick Frizzetti, we appreciate your views. Some Opportunity Friday stocks. Have a great weekend, Patrick. Thank you very much. And Thanks. folks, that does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Just a reminder, the markets and us are off on Monday. In remembrance of the great Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as well. So we will see you on Tuesday. Have a great weekend. Squawk Box, picking up all the coverage next. Take care. 
You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.